Welcome to Assorted Goods. I'm Dan Felton. Thank you for joining me here this episode as we take a curious look at the world around us. I hope you're doing well out there. It's good to be back for a new year of the podcast. And this episode, we're diving into the world of college sports and the evolving rights of collegiate athletes, mainly in their rights to their own name, image, and likeness. For a long time, college athletes waived their rights to make any sort of money off of their own images when they committed to play a sport for their college. Attempts to make money for themselves, or schools who were caught slipping a little extra something-something to players, caused the athletes to be subjected to harsh punishments, the schools too. Oftentimes that included being stripped of any accolades they received, and even being banned from playing college sports at all. Then, this past year, in what was almost a blink of an eye, that standard changed completely. And college athletes now exist in a bit of a legal vacuum. They can now profit off of their own images with seemingly no restrictions, at least for now. It's a kind of topic that could really benefit from some expert advice. And as luck should have it, I've got one. Joining me this episode is lawyer Bruce Siegel. Bruce works as a counsel for the firm Greenspoon Martyr in Atlanta, Georgia, and has over 30 years of experience in the field of intellectual property in sports. Seems like the right guy to talk to. This was a great conversation as we got down to the details of what's changed for college athletes, what their rights are now, and how the college sports landscape has been shaken up, and also what the future may hold. So settle in and enjoy my conversation with Bruce Siegel. Assorted Goods is produced by Disinformed Media in association with Verboten Productions. Promotional support comes from the Always Up Network and DeanBlundell.com. So Bruce Siegel, welcome to Assorted Goods. Thank you for joining me here today to talk about the evolving landscape of college sports and intellectual property rights. Great. Thanks for having me on. So we're diving into the topic of name, image, and likeness. It's a, it's a bit of a hot topic at the moment in college sports. And I just want to, I'm a simple guy. I like to start with the basics. So when we're talking about name, image, and likeness, what exactly does that mean? Or what, what is encompassed under that term? Well, name, image, and likeness, you know, in general is, you know, a part of, of intellectual property. It's, um, you know, not to get overly legal, but, you know, it's part of the ability for individuals to protect their name, image, likeness, picture, gestures, mannerisms. It, it's very broad in terms of what one can protect, um, you know, under the law of the right of, of, right of publicity. You know, in this in the U.S., um, right of publicity is governed. Uh, it's not a federal law like trademark or copyright. It is state by state. But you know, most states recognize some degree of right of publicity and name, image, and likeness, and, and right of publicity are essentially one and the same. In the college context, of course, we're talking about um, college athletes and their newly found ability um, due to prior NCAA regulations prohibiting commercialization of name, image, and likeness. This is now you know, an issue for college athletes. And every, everyone has, to some degree, you know, maybe not a, a, you know, a, a lucrative or um, you know, money-making right of publicity, but everyone inherently has a right of publicity. But with college athletes, they had it, but the NCAA wouldn't let them exercise it without, or they could, but they could no longer, you know, be eligible right. as a college athlete um, and, and, and be, you know, compliant with NCAA. Now, in terms of, in terms of name, image, and likeness, is there any sort of 
common misconceptions uh, about what it entails or, or what maybe people believe it or what the rights are for athletes? Is there anything that you've noticed in, in your experience that people mistake about it or, or what it includes? Well, you know, there, it, it just to, you know, to, to be clear on, on that point, you know, it, and maybe to, to kind of back up and just put it in a little bit of context, you know, my background was in working as in a sports agency representing colleges and universities with respect, with respect to protecting and licensing their trademark rights, <clears throat> you know, their logos, their mascots, their team names. Um, and, you know, and when I was starting, you know, while professional leagues, um, you know, were very active and, and had been involved in licensing programs for many years, colleges and universities were new. They uh, recognized through our help that they had trademark rights in their, um, you know, various logos that they should protect. And if they did protect and license, they could generate revenue. During that time period, um, you know, while colleges were building their brands, so to speak, um, student athletes were prohibited. And, and it was my job, among other things, to say, well, yes, licensee company, you can certainly, if you get the rights, use, um, you know, the University of Michigan logos and, and produce shirts and apparel and other products, but you cannot make any reference to any uh, current student athletes. You can't do jerseys, for example. Um, and so I, as, you know, so when you look at the rights that a, a student athlete has, which, and, and we can talk about what, what the NCAA did and, and why they changed their, their position, um, you know, there's a little bit of a combination between trademark rights and right of publicity when it comes to what can a student athlete protect. They can protect, you know, their name, their nickname. Um, you know, many people come up with clever sayings or phrases or even logos that, that identify the person. Those can be protected, you know, if used and, and, and properly protected as a trademark. And with a trademark, you can protect anyone from infringing that mark if people are confused that it is associated with you. And so... When you're looking at, you know, what are the overall bundle of rights that a student athlete or an athlete or, or celebrity or anyone has, that can include trademark rights uh, as well as um, as well as right right of publicity. Where there can be confusion, you know, is how far you know does the right of publicity extend? And again, I mentioned that you know that it doesn't just protect you know your face and your name and your image. You know, there are cases where, you know, where celebrities like Vanna White have, you know, have been able to successfully prevent others, you know, from using their their mannerisms and, and their gestures. Um, Don Newcomb, the, the baseball pitcher, was able to prevent a beer company from using an image of his distinctive pitching style. And so, you know, it, it can the, the rights can be very broad. You know, how broad can they be? you know, is sort of a question of, of fact and, and what they can, can prove. The other issue is, um, you know, First Amendment. You know, there's, you know, typically a, uh, a tension between, you know, okay, what are the, the these bundle of rights? But if, it, if it's, you know, the media doing reporting, you know, there, there are certain, you know, they can, they can do things that commercial entities can't because they've got the, the, the right to, as they should, you know, report the news and sports and, and to be able to have 
some latitude in, in using um, you know, these images in connection with news reporting. Now, when you first got into the field of intellectual property and all this, you know, the, the, the field of, of college sports was much less infused with a lot of money, copious amounts of TV contracts and, and the millions of dollars going to, to staff and, and coaches and all that. But when you first started out, do you recall what the view of, of, you know, intellectual property and amateurism was at that point in time? And, and how has it sort of evolved and changed in, in the decades since then? Well, when we started, and again, I don't want to age myself, but um, <laughs> oh, no. several decades ago, um, you know, again, as I alluded to earlier, you know, colleges and universities were new to recognizing trademark rights to the extent that they could be used in, in licensing and sponsorship and, and endorsement models. You know, of course, you know, TV rights and broadcast rights you know, they've been around, you know, longer th than that, but it was not until the 70s and 80s that colleges and universities recognized that they could, you know, that they could protect and, and, and license and, and should be protecting and licensing and generating revenue off of their trademarks in the merchandising and sponsorship area. Um, you know, the NCAA's um, position on um, you know, why student athletes shouldn't be able to do that, you know, goes back, you know, many, many years under the principle of amateurism. And, you know, and it stemmed from, you know, their desire for student athletes to not be characterized as uh, employees, because if, if that were the case, then they would have some responsibilities and, uh, and obligations and liabilities that they didn't necessarily want to take on. And you've, you've seen into the future of my list of questions here, because, uh, you know, when I was uh, the argument, even up into this year, when the rules started to change that I got always heard. And I think most, most sport, college sports fans and, and anybody on this subject has always heard, you know, uh, scholarship and room and board is, is more than enough value for, for the, the labor that these athletes provide to the universities and, and the, the NCAA as a whole. And you're right that that, that argument seems to send back decades and decades so I'm very curious about what the legal sort of principle was that they fell back on, because how did the NCAA for so long skirt labor laws uh, by, by classifying these athletes in, a, in sort of an exemption that doesn't apply the same way it would to any other workforce? What exactly did they fall back on and how did it hold up for so many years? Well, they, they fell back on, you know, their, um, you know, their, their practice and their ability of, um, implementing and, um, you know, and imposing rules and regulations on collegiate organizations, colleges and universities that, that, that are part of the NCAA. I mean, it's not as though the NCAA came along and, um, you know, the, the NCAA is, is an organization that is consistent with and, and, and basically, you know, run by, you know, collegiate institutions and conferences and, uh, and, and the like, but um, the, the NCAA, um, you know, relied for many years on um, the, the ability to, you know, to it, to put out and, and organize these rules and regulations um, without scrutiny because of um, their, you know, their reliance on the position of amateurism, and um, you know, we can impose restrictions and regulations that include 
um, student athletes can't get paid, you know, as part of our ability to impose rules and regulations, you know, designed to, you know, make possible the, the sport of, of college athletics. And what distinguishes, you know, college athletics from professional athletics is amateurism. And then, you know, people, you know, people want the, the college product because it is is different than that. And if, if college athletes got paid, then it, you know, people would not be interested, essentially. You know, so legally, um, there was a, a case, and, you know, the, this, the concept of amateurism goes back to a case in the early 80s that involved um, a, a challenge regarding broadcast rights. And, um, you know, the NCAA used to control uh, television and, and television rights and, uh, you know, who could broadcast games, how many games could be broadcast, um, and, 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 you know, basically that they controlled that and they limited very, you know, significantly, you know, what could be viewed on, uh, on broadcast television. Of, of course, you know, things have been changed since then, but, um, you know, so several schools, you know, got together and said, wait a minute, we don't want to be, you know, we could be on TV every week. We, we shouldn't have to be restricted in this way. And so we believe that the NCAA is violating antitrust laws by restricting and, and by controlling the, the TV rights the way that they are, are doing it. And so there was um, you know, a, a big um, you know, major case that went all the way to the Supreme Court that actually ruled in favor of, um, you know, of the schools and, and opened up um, you know, television and, and to what it's become now. However, as part of that case, there was language that said, that you know th this case you know ha has been decided in favor and against the NCAA. However, you know we recognize that the NCAA does you know have certain leeway to impose rules and, and, and regulations related to eligibility, related to the operation of you know of college sports under the principle of of amateurism, and that is what you know that that is what the Supreme Court ruled in, in, in as part of the decision that the NCA relied on for many, many years. And so even though they lost the case, yes. they would point to this language that said and that distinguished the NCAA and the concept is am, of amateurism is allowing the NCAA to um, you know to 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 be the force that that imposed these restrictions. Right. And from what I researched over the last uh, few weeks before we started this interview, which was exactly that, that every time there was some sort of legal challenge to to amateurism or to the intellectual property rights uh, between college athletics and the NCAA, they seemed to lose consistently over the years. But it, just like you said, they they would lose with some sort of backstop of of they would cede a little ground, but there would still be this this underlying part of it that was the athletes can't profit off their own image, their own likeness in any sort of way. The, you mentioned the antitrust suit that they, the schools filed with the TV deals. The, the case that I recall being such a, a, a big sort of watershed moment was the Ed O'Bannon lawsuit against the NCAA uh, stemming from, if I recall the story he tells, it's that his nephew or, or someone in his family was playing the video, the college basketball video game and noticed that there was a, a, a left-handed forward for UCLA who wore his jersey number, had the same bald head, had the same skill set. And he thought that looks a lot like me, but that's not me. There's no name. And that started the lawsuit that lasted 
a lot of years until about 2014 when it was settled. That was also, as I understand, filed as an antitrust suit. What was the what was the antitrust angle on the NCAA that that sort of started this course of events that leads us to where we are now? Okay, sort of in in you know in in a nutshell, because we could really get into the weeds <laughs> here on these cases. But there there are you know let's just say that there are three main cases that are related that go to yeah you know, that, that started about a decade ago, uh, a little bit more, and that that, that have led to and, and, and kind of gone into the mix of, of where we are now and and where the NCAA is now and what sort of informs their change of heart about. Um, um, about student athletes and their ability to exercise name, image, and likeness. But you're, you're absolutely correct. There were a couple of different cases that were brought. The Ed O'Bannon case, that basically, you know, that, and that was combined with another case um, that was filed by um, an Arizona um, a quarterback and, um, and, and others that was based upon right of publicity, based upon right of publicity, Sam Keller, and um, the, the abandoned case was focused on antitrust. And you know that, that case basically said, look, the NCAA, and, and it, this was about you know the, the appearance in, in video games produced by right. EA Sports. Yes. Um, that's what you know you know drove all of this. But they're saying, look, the, the NCAA, you know, which is part of you know the, the mix of this video game allowing rights for trademark use, you know, the, their position is that student athletes can't, you know, participate, you know, even though our avatars, our images are using, but you know, they're saying we can't get paid um, for, um, you know, for, for being part of the teams that are competing and, and, and depicted in these games. And so essentially, you know, they have conspired with all of the colleges and universities and conferences to set our compensation level at zero. And that was the, the antitrust part of the case. The right of publicity case was, look, you know, the, the, you may you, you may not be using our names, but you're using, you know, it, it's it's obvious that you're using, you know, body types and, and, and features that people are going to clearly associate with us. And you know, on, on the basketball side, it, you know, from EA's perspective, it's difficult more difficult every year, the better their games got, you know, to field a team of avatars and, and not have someone, you know, kind of make the connection between, you know, who people are. Plus, there was the ability, both in, in basketball and football, for, you know, for, for users, for players of the games to go in and manipulate the system yes. to actually, you know, add names. Yeah. And, and so it was, it was a, a messy, long, long, case, um, you know, the, the right of publicity case essentially, I mean, excuse me, the, the right, yeah, the right of publicity case essentially settled and, you know, never, you know, made a, a final ruling about whether this, you know, was in fact an infringement upon name, image, and likeness. But at some point that that case settled, um, there was a $60 million settlement mm -hmm. and funds went to, um, you know, to a, a certain group of of student athletes, and and so that part of it went away. The O'Bannon case, you know, con, you know, continued on, and um, um, you know, basically the the net of that was that um, the, the judicial final holding was that um, the NCAA can 
have restrictions regarding student athletes generating revenue from commercial uses, you know, from uses of their name, image, and likeness. However, they cannot restrict colleges and universities for paying educational costs. And so, you know, that case was, you know, chugging along. And then at the same time, another case was filed. And that was the case that went all the way to the Supreme Court, the Austin case. And the Austin case is, you know, really what uh, that that was that, that went to the Supreme Court and it specifically challenged the NCAA restrictions as those relate to um, um, you know to, to limiting the, the ability of um, colleges and universities to pay beyond the cost of attendance. Right. You know that they were like you, you, you can't limit that and you can't limit um, you know payment of expenses that are tethered to education. And um, you know that they didn't go broader than that, but that case made it to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court got it and ruled unanimously in favor of the of the plaintiffs of, of Austin and, 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 and the student athletes, you know, essentially saying that, um, you know, look, you know, th- this case, you know, number one, um, the NCAA cannot rely on this concept of amateurism as a way to avoid antitrust scrutiny. That's off the table. And so that was huge because that was exactly, you know, the NCAA's, um, you know, argument all these years is that, you know, we do have this ability to regulate these things based upon amateurism that went away. Um, And while the decision, uh, you know, specifically ruled on the educational related expenses, there were other parts of the decision and a concurring part of the decision you know, that, you know, that essentially called into question, you know, any sort of restrictions on, um, um, you know, what the NCAA could do in terms of restricting money paid to student, to to college athletes. Right. Now, from the, what I've read about the Ed O'Bannon suit, when it was settled in 2014, prior to that, for, for listeners, if they don't know, when a college athlete declares that they're going to any sort of school, they sign a letter of intent, which is sort of a legally binding document that outlines all the stipulations of, of becoming a college athlete and, and, you know, all the things therein. Prior to 2014, part of that was waiving the sort of name image likeness rights when they would sign their letters of intent. And from what I understood in 2014, although they backed away, again, like I said earlier, they, every time they would lose a lawsuit, they would back up, but still sort of be There'd be some sort of legal backstop because you'd think that may have been what would start the path to where we are now. And it it was in a lot of ways, but it didn't remove the bylaw that allowed the NCAA to use their likeness for their own purposes. So they, it still prohibited the athletes from any sort of self-created businesses or self-use of their own image and likeness. Is, is there any, do you have any insight into how they managed to sort of skirt that and, and avoid sort of being where we are now seven years ago? Well, you know, I mean, again, you know, I, I think that they, you know, continued to hold out hope that if this, you know, if, if this issue, this antitrust issue made it all the way to the Supreme Court, because it, it, after all, the NCAA, you know, petitioned um, for Supreme Court review um, after, you know, they had, you know, an earlier decision that seemed to be favorable, you know, with respect to, 
the limit to education benefits, but still, you know, didn't preclude them from getting involved in, in restrictions of name, image, and likeness right. revenue. And so I think that, you know, that, that, that all along, you know, they, they recognized that, you know, let's just kind of look at this incrementally and, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're going to be okay with, um, you know, with going beyond cost of attendance right. and then, you know, we're not going to, you know, get involved in that, but we're going to hold firmly to the position that, um, you know, the commercial use of the name, image, and likeness is not going to fly. And in terms of, from what I understand, the the Alston case, they they won the lawsuit and and then they appealed to send it to the Supreme Court and then suffered a worse loss at the hands of the Supreme Court. I guess is it, my understanding of it was that they they sort of sort of screwed themselves in the end by by trying to push it further and then ended up losing worse than they would have if they had just accepted the original decision in the Alston case. Well, I think in, in hindsight, you know, by, you know, by, by pressing it and, and, and trying to, um, you know, tr- trying to get um, a decision in their favor. Yeah, they, they, they absolutely, you know, I, I think uh, in hindsight, it would have that they probably would have been better off not getting, you know, a unanimous Supreme Court decision uh, ruling against them and, and really slapping them on the wrist for, um, you know, for, you um, that this concept of amateurism and, and really, you know, calling into question, you know, not just their rules related to education, but, you know, what, their ability to do, um, you know, to, to impose any sort of financial restrictions. Now, the, in 2019, California passes a bill, SB 26, this is the Fair Pay to Play Act, which was sort of the, the start, I guess, of the avalanche of, of law, legal changes that, that lead us to where we are now. It was originally supposed to take effect in 2023, and then this past summer, multiple other states sort of jumped the gun and passed their own laws in the same sort of mold, and then California catches on and, and moves the effective date of, of SB 26 to September 1st of this past year, and after that, everything just pretty much breaks open to, what, to the situation we now have. So legally speaking, you know, is there is there any sort of cause as to why this all happened sort of within you know, a matter of a couple of months, it, it still seemed like the NCAA had their their ground, although it was getting a little shaky. And then almost at a snap of the fingers, a few states get it going. And next thing you know, we're, we're in the Wild West when it comes to name, image, and likeness rights. Is there any sort of legal uh, perspective on how that, how that took place and how it all unfolded? Yeah, you know, I think that, again, I think when you kind of take a step back and, and look at, at the big picture, there were a confluence of factors that, you know, led to, this you know magic date of July 1, 2021. <clears throat> and you know, one may say, well, you know, if, if we you know if we rewound back to, to 2009 when the O'Bannon case was filed and you know when this really started, you know, becoming you know a a, a broad, you know, well-known, you know, public um, you know, publicly known issue with negative publicity, negative PR. You know why did it? Why did we flash forward ten years ago when California announces that in our state we're passing, you know, a, a bill that won't go into effect yet? However, it will go into effect, and it will basically say that in the state of California, you're violating California law if you restrict the ability of a student athlete to exercise his name, image, and likeness rights. And that, you know, that applies to college, university, conference, you know, no, no one can impose this 
restriction. Well, that, you know, that, that all of a sudden led, I think, the NCAA to the realization that what's going to happen now is that we're going to have, you know, California, it's not going to end with California, right? right? Because once California goes forward and, and announces its intentions and, and has its bill in place, you know, immediately other states began to follow suit, including Florida. Um, and Florida, and I mentioned Florida because while they weren't the first to pass legislation, they passed legislation that was designed to go into effect first among states, right. i.e. July 1, 2021. And so that all of a sudden, you know, reduced the time frame right. significantly. And so the NCAA began, um, you know, efforts to, you know, they recognized that we were going to have to review this and, and make changes. But, you know, we still believe that there's a much better solution than a patchwork of, of state laws that could be different than one another, creating this Wild West, um, you know, chaotic scene. Um, and, you know, they, they immediately began to, um, you know, to, to try to get congressional support for one of two things. You know, number one, they, they formed a study group to come up with um, revised NCAA rules and regulations regarding name, image, and likeness. We're going to go in and, and we're going to ourselves, you know, reform and, and change the rules and regulations. Um, and if there's going to be legislation, we believe that it should be federal legislation, that there should be, you know, one law that, that spells out, you know, how this is going to work so that there's uniformity. And, um, you know, the problem is that, you know, time went, went on. There were people that didn't, that, that didn't believe that what the NCAA was proposing, you know, was going to be, um, you know, student athlete friendly, you know, that they may say, well, yeah, you can exercise your rights to name, image, and likeness, you know, but um, that there were many that just didn't think that that went far enough and that they, that they shouldn't even be involved at all. And so it became, you know, very political. Again, states didn't want to wait and see what happened. And so you have a growing number of states passing laws. It's up to more than 25 now. But, um, and all that's taking place this past summer. Um, and, you know, Congress, you know, the, even within, you know, Congress, there were different competing federal proposed laws some of which were, you know, more inclined to be receptive to student athletes, some of which were, were more restrictive and, you know, and it was hard to develop a consensus. And finally, basically time just ran out because once, um, and then the Austin case is, um, you know, comes out in the middle of the summer as well. So you've got this, right. you know, the handwriting is on the wall, right? And so the NCAA is like, well, you know, if we, you know, given this decision, you know, given what the states are doing, given that there's not going to be a federal bill, if we go forward and propose new rules and regulations and, and restrictions, we're just going to get sued again. You know, I mean, how, how are we going to come up with our, ourselves, given where we are now, you know, the, the right approach to this? And so we're just basically going to hit pause and um, allow the process to you know, to, to go forward, 
based upon you know what the states want to do. And if there's a state law, the state law governs. If there's not a state law, then um, you know our overarching you know position is that okay, student athletes can exercise and and you know sell their name, image, and likeness. However, universities can't pay them. They can't. This can't be used as a recruiting violation, and there can be no pay for play per se. Um, leaving things a little bit, you know, up up in the air in terms of kind of how to sort this out and, and how to define it. But you know, essentially, you know, leaving it up to you know to, to each university to determine: Does my state have a law? Right. And am I bound by that? If my state does not have a law, then it's up to me, you know, to create my own policy. And so right now, that, that is what has led to the current patchwork of, of laws and, and policies that, that goes into this. But just to, you know, to, to maybe, you know, make it a little bit more definitive, you know, that there are common provisions in the different state bills. And, you know, those are that college athletes, name, image, and likeness rights cannot be restricted by the institution. Um, college athletes can obtain professional representation, right? I mean, you know, the, the, there's absolute rules against utilizing, you know, any sort of an, an agent or representative, um, you know, and, and of course, what would they do if you couldn't exercise your name, image, and likeness? But they basically removed that restriction. Um, the, the college athletes' contract terms can't conflict with the institution's contract or team rules. You know, if you're a Nike school, you don't want your quarterback to be wearing Adidas shoes on, on the field. Right. Um, and the institution itself can't provide compensation to a current college athlete, which is as it is across the board. You know, student athletes can enter into deals with third parties and they can pay them license fees or sponsorship fees, but the school itself can't pay. And then other states have prohibited certain categories, alcohol, tobacco, pornography, gambling, right. and, and, and the like. And so again, you know, while there are commonalities, um, you know, there's a lot of navigation right. to go into right. to determine, you know, what you can do and, and what you can't do and, um, and, and, you know, define this in a way that puts you in, in, in a safe space. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear a couple of messages from some fellow podcasting friends. And when we come back, Bruce Siegel and I discuss where college athletes stand now in terms of their rights, what further changes we may see in the future, and if college sports may be actually opening the door up to make even more money. So stay tuned. Find your next favorite podcast here at the break and Assorted Goods. We'll be right back with more with Bruce Siegel. Hi. I'm Courtney Fenner, and along with my co-host Amanda Cronin, hey hey, we are a Nefarious Nightmare. We are a podcast that covers true crime, the paranormal, weird unsolved mysteries, and all with a personal approach and a sense of humor. We also end our podcast with good life advice such as, wear deodorant, 
or don't be a Richard. Courtney and I have covered cases such as the Baker Hotel in Mineral Wells, Texas, and the tragic death of little Sharon Matthews. We've also covered the case of Gloria Ramirez, who was, very unfortunately, dubbed the toxic lady in the media. And also, in episode one, we have an interview with Jason Vukovich, the Alaskan Avenger, and his sister, Angelina. So let's all gather around the bonfire and roast serial killers and marshmallows. Yes, yes, come on in, come on in. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, pretty much anywhere you find really great podcasts. Thank you guys so much for listening, and welcome to A Nefarious Nightmare. Snide's Return is a tabletop role-playing game interviews and actual play podcast. We interview content creators, Twitch streamers, and fellow podcasters, and we put out our own actual play using a variety of different systems. So come and join us, come and have a listen. You can find us on Twitter at Return Snyder. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or check out our website at www.snidesreturn.squarespace.com. And now, a continuation of my conversation with Bruce Siegel. So, so in terms of what the athletes are now, I guess, entitled to or what they're, they're legally allowed to, especially under the NCAA rules and all that, where do they, where do athletes stand right now? Is there, is anything sort of off limits or are we really just sort of in the wild West? Is this sort of a bit of a gray period we're in right now where there's still a lot of ironing out to be done or, or what, what, uh, what sort of intellectual property can they claim now? Well, they're, they're definitely, you know, they're, they're, it's definitely a, a, a confusing and difficult time, you know, both for the college athletes and, you know, for people that are trying to, to represent and, and, and guide and help them navigate the process. Um, and um, at the same time, you know, I, I think it, we, we should point out that, you know, the NCA still is, is involved in the process. I mean, right now they're in the process of rewriting not just the, the rules and regulations, but their entire governing constitution. Um, but what they're doing is, is essentially moving away from the, the top-down granular approach to, to rulemaking, to shifting responsibilities to the NCAA's three divisions, one, two, and three, um, and you know, setting forth overall guiding policies, i.e. no pay for play. Right. That's the big question right now, I think, that people are grappling with because you know, as deals are getting done, um, you know, the lack of you know, definitions, you know, for that, um, you know, can, can be puzzling and I'll, I can give you some examples of, of, of why, but, you know, and whole team deals, I think are one of the, the most perplexing and, um, and are garnering, garnering a lot of attention right now. Early on, it was, seemed very clear that the rule of thumb was that athletic departments, you know, they, their role in, in working with student athletes was to help educate them and, you know, provide guidance, you know, from a high profile perspective, but not, you know, actually facilitate and get involved in actual deals. But I think that in part because, you know, A, the rules are unclear, B, it's even less clear, you know, who's going to be enforcing these rules. Right. Um, you know, all, all of a sudden, you know, you've got athletic departments facilitating football-wide deals. Yeah. You know, for example, you know, Brigham Young, BYU entered into an agreement with a protein bar company yes. where, where all scholarship football players get $1,000, you know, for representing, 
built bar, you know, which is fine. That's not right. pay for play if they're actually, you know, doing something as, you know, part of, of, a, of an exchange. Yeah. However, um, non-scholarship teammates received a stipend covering their tuition for at least one year. You know, as a matter of policy, that sounds pretty good. You know, I think it's yeah. just, yeah, this is very beneficial. But, you know, what, what is the difference between an opportunity and, and pay for play there? Because if they're not actually, you know, doing something, you know, if, if they're, you know, I mean, if, if you're entering into a, a deal, you know, where you're promoting a brand or where you're endorsing and, you know, you're, you're doing something, you know, there's an exchange and that's not pay for play because you're being compensated, you know, for, for providing a service. But if you're being compensated, you know, solely because you're on the team, um, you know, what, what does that actually mean? You know, there's the, another example where at the University of, Miss, of Miami, yes, where scholarship bring players, that up actually, <laughs> yeah, where you know a, a, a you know where a big booster, you know, basically gave everybody on the team the opportunity to earn money for promoting gyms. And, and that's, you know, an across the board NIL deal. And the NCAA has recently said, well, you know, in both of these instances, you know, we're going to have a look at this. Right. Um, but people are saying, well, what is it? You're going to have a look at it. I mean, you, you know, arguably you kind of, you know, created this fine mess and, and, and now you're going to take, um, you know, a, a look at it. And, and, you know, are you really going to, go out and now enforce when you've sort of set up this mentality of non-enforcement. But at the end of the day, there's a very thin line between, you know, what is an NIL opportunity and a pay for play um, and and recruiting uh, inducement. Right. I'm glad you brought up the University of Miami uh, example because I'm I'm a big Miami football fan myself. I, I apologize yeah. to your to your Georgia Tech uh, affiliations there, but uh, yeah, that that was one that I think really surprised me. You know, when when the laws changed and suddenly all you know top flight players were signing you know endorsement deals, that seemed to make sense. But the Miami one struck me as odd for that reason that that the entire team was being given sort of a a, a stipend from a from a local business owner for the whole roster of football players seemingly in a in a sort of pay for play kind of style but not because it's not coming from the school itself does that seem to be this sort of legal distinction right now that it that they still can't sort of they it seems like these are sort of circumventing the rules in a way that used to be the kind of thing that a school would get caught doing and then you know the hammer would be brought down on them but this now seems to be doing the same thing except in you know operating in this legal gray area is that are there any sort of guidelines that you see that are that could be put in place in the next few years to sort of curtail this this wild west scenario? Well, there, there need to be because again, you know, you know, right now it is it is the case that you know if if not, you know, the rule is not clear, right? And so what what is happening is that you know these deals are getting done, facilitated by athletic departments on a university-wide basis or on a, on a team-wide basis. So on, on the on the one hand, you know, is that, a, you know, we're, we're not actually paying them, but, you know, we're, we're, we're working with our, our sponsors, perhaps, you know, we're, you know, we're organizing these deals and, and helping them to, to go forward. You know, boosters are, are doing the same thing. They're creating these funds so that, um, 
you know, that, that they can, it can, you know, as being recruited to, to go for a particular team, you know, we're, we're developing this investment chest of money so that if, yeah. if you go play here, then, you know, there, there will be NIL opportunities available right. for you. So it's not writing the school, writing the check, but it's, you know, these two things taking place in a world where there things are not clearly defined. And so, you know, other schools are, are not going, you know, for the same reason that states began implementing, you know, state NIL rules. You know, I mean, if you're in Alabama, if you're the state of Alabama and in Florida, student athletes can, can get paid. But in Alabama, you don't have that, that same law. You don't want to lose advantages. And so as it is now that the cat is kind of out of the bag on that. And so, you know, other, you know, other, you know, schools and other teams are doing, you know, sport wide deals. And again, you know, it is there, there does need, you know, whether those are kosher or not, it should be clear, you know, what you can do and what you can't do. I mean, on the one hand, it seems to, to violate the, the pay for play or, or get you know pretty close on the other hand isn't it isn't it a good thing you know that there could be a sponsorship that benefits the entire you know women's volleyball team um and you know is that you know bad per se um so that's you know that 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 there is a lot of room for clarity and i think that that will come you know in part you know again the nca has put it out there that they're taking a look at these school-wide deals at the same time they've got this committee you know that is changing the constitution and proposing guidelines you know for the divisions and so things will continue to happen it's just the longer it takes and and the more deals that that are being done under the current state of uncertainty the more difficult it's going to be to kind of bring it back together Right. Now, is there any, uh, are there any aspects of, of the schools and the, and the conferences and the NCAA's trademarks right now that, that athletes still aren't allowed to violate or, or, you know, is there an aspect of their personal branding that they still have to stay away from in terms of their, their affiliations with the teams and conferences? Yeah, a, a couple of things there, you know, one decision that universities need to, to make is that, you know, by allowing that, you know, in a, in a world where a student athlete is able to go out and enter into deals regarding their personal name, image, and likeness, you know, that, that's fine, and, and schools aren't going to do anything to protect that. The question is, <clears throat> what if the, the sponsor or the licensee wants to use the student athlete's name, image, and likeness in combination with university indicia? So that it, the product has it, it's it's called co-branding, and, and so it's both, you know, the the, the indicia. And let, let's take jersey as an example. Right. You know, so you've got an, an official replica jersey, and for many years you couldn't do those with you know the name of the student athlete on back on back of it. So now you know it's up to the university to determine what are the rules for um, allowing this co-branding or not allowing the co-branding, and that's. Right. A university by university decision that may be influenced by the state law, but, but by and large, it's going to be up to the school. Yeah, the other issue and opportunity involves group licensing. You know, there are there's a company that, that is involved, Vander, that is putting together opportunities for uh, a, a licensee or a sponsor 
to come in and, and get authorized across the board, you know, for not just an athlete by athlete deal, but a, a deal with the whole group of athletes that would be applicable to a lot of things, things like trading cards, video games, yeah. you know, university, you know, team, um, um, you know, broad team type, um, you know, type programs. Right. No, the, uh, after the Ed O'Bannon suit was settled, uh, that was the end tragically for, for me at the time of the EA sports NCAA football game. Coincidentally, I guess, or not coincidentally, it's now apparently coming back. It seems to in the next year or so they're planning on bringing the game back. I, I guess that has to do with this shift in, in what those rights are for the athletes. Maybe the, these, these companies are seeing an opportunity to sort of exist in this new world that that's being created. I'm just curious, do you think do you think that there's going to be sort of a shift that the schools will see dollar signs here as well? I mean, we said that you can never sell jerseys of players, but that there's got to be a, a serious financial market in selling your Heisman Trophy favorite quarterback, you know, his jersey to to a hundred thousand screaming fans with his name on it while he's still on the team. Is there is there sort of yet to be sort of the schools coming around to think, hey, actually this is an opportunity for us to maybe not lose money and, and, you know, paying the players or, or giving them opportunities, but actually to sort of double down on this and, and, you know, merchandise and collaborate yeah. with their own players in that way. Yeah. yeah I think that there, there, there are two schools of thought per se among schools, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, I've always, you know, I, I come from a perspective where I think that, look, just, you know, all things being equal, it, 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 it it's, it is a good thing that student athletes have the opportunity now to develop their personal brands and, and to not be precluded, um, you know, from exercising their, their inherent rights of publicity. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, some universities may have looked at that as, you know, threatening perhaps. And uh, yeah, so on the one hand, there's a school of thought that says, well, wait a minute, if, you know, if sponsors with limited you know, dollars um, want to, you know, get involved with our university, are they going to not spend money on, you know, the, the university branding, you know, part of the, the sponsorship when they can, you know, put those dollars to get sponsorship by the star quarterback. And that, you know, again, I think that, you know, the university brand is going to be there year in and year out. Uh, a star quarterback, Number one may not be a star quarterback, right. but um, you know, at best is going to be around you know what a, a couple you know years, maybe a few years. So um, you know, th th there's there's that school of thought. I think that you know, certainly from a licensing and a jersey perspective, it looks to to me like we will look back and say this was you know not as threatening as perhaps some may have seen it. This was a great opportunity for incremental revenue. Uh, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. Right. You know, if we can, you know, get involved and, and be in partnerships with college athletes and, you know, work together. And as, you know, as product is sold, you know, we're going to get our revenue based upon our trademark rights, right? And so if those that enter, in, enter into co-branded deals, they're going to pay the trademark royalty to the university. They're going to pay the right of publicity revenue to, the um to the student athlete and, and so you know no, no one's going to lose there's just an opportunity to expand you know the market for a variety of, of different kinds of 
your products, you know, creativity, um, you know, the, the sky is the sky is the limit in terms of, you know, what kind of programs you can put together, you know, bobbleheads, jerseys, um, you know, trading cards, of course, video yeah. games, all of these things that, you know, probably haven't even fully been thought of yet, right. um, you know, are, are now, um, you know, available. And, and it's going to be, um, you know, a significant, you know, part of, um, you know, of the industry. There's a company called Open Doors, a sports technology company that helps facilitate endorsements. You know, right now, um, you know, Division One athletes, you know, may be generating four or $500 on average, um, you know, since July, but they're projecting that college, they're projecting college athlete NIL market could be a $1.5 billion market in 2021 alone. And so I think that, you know, right now, you know, you've got the legal and, and compliance issues to sort out from a business perspective, you know, you've got those issues to, to sort out, you know, what are the opportunities, what are the best opportunities that are going to, you know, to add value and, and cause sponsors to, you know, to, invest in, in this market. Now, one of the, one of the myths, I guess, about, about this sort of argument about paying players or giving them this opportunity over the years was the whole idea that, oh, this is only going to benefit the, the very, very top, the biggest schools, the best players, this and that. But so far that seems to not really be the case. The, the idea of course, that, that, you know, only football and basketball are ones who are going to be making anything out of this. And even that it's only going to be the, the very top is there, do you see there being any issue with the, the smaller sports or as you said before, is this, a, is this going to be a case of the, the rising tide lifting all boats? I understand that a lot of uh, sports programs run at a deficit financially. And do you see this being an opportunity to sort of support athletic programs as a whole, as opposed to just being, you know, seen as a, you know, oh the rich are going to get richer and the, it's, it's only going to just go to the top. Is this an opportunity to actually maybe provide additional funding to athletic programs that are currently struggling financially? Yeah, I think there's that. And, and again, I think, you know, to the point of, um, you know, of, of, of participation, you know, I don't think that anyone has ever, you know, suggested that all college athletes are going to get, you know, are going to become wealthy over right. the ability, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, they get the keys to the car, but they're not necessarily taught to drive. But, you know, there are, there, you know, Female athletes, you know, bat, women's basketball players, the Cavender twins, you know, are are doing huge deals based upon things that you know that, that, that certainly they're, they're they're college athletes, but they're creative in ways that they have developed a social media presence, right? An, an ability to you know to be recognized in a way that brands want to be associated with them, and so you know it, it's you know that certainly. You know that the marquee players are, are they're going to be represented by, you know, by, by those that are looking to, you know, haul in the, the big fish. But you know, if if you're, you know, if you're a, a player on a non, you know, on a non basketball, football, you know, ma major sport, and you can have the opportunity to enter into some social media deals and, and, and do some things that, that generate, you know, some extra, you know you know, money, if you're several thousand dollars in a year, you know, when I was in college, that would have been, you know, that, that would have been mana from heaven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think that, you know, what is created 
is, you know, is the opportunity to be creative. And again, whether that's based on your athletic prowess solely, or this is a, a platform that, that helps you, um, you know, tell your personal story, um, you know, through being in, involved and in having large followings on Instagram, there are just endless possibilities, except if you, except if you are um, uh, an international student, and that's perhaps a different subject, but if, if you're on, you know, in on, on a visa that restricts your ability to, um, uh -huh. to, to generate revenue, it, it's a, a big issue because there are um, you know, student athletes that, that come in from, uh, from many different countries sure. and, you know, they're side by side, you know, with, um, you know, with, with American athletes that have no restrictions, but they may be here on a visa, an F1 visa, for example, that says, um, you know, you're restricted from being employed or from, you know, making money in, in an employment relationship. You know, you're here as a student athlete. And if you violate the terms of your visa, you could be in trouble. Right. And that's right now one of those issues that is yeah. in the mix and that there doesn't, you know, unless Congress, and this is, these are the kind of things I think that Congress should be paying attention to because it certainly does not seem, um, you know, it certainly does not seem equitable that if, you know, if you're, you know, from a, another country and you're playing in the U.S. that you shouldn't have the same opportunity to take advantage of this. I was, I was just thinking of the, the University of Miami's Australian punter who they have right now, who I'm, who must be wondering about, uh, like you said, must be wondering whether he's going to get a piece of that, you know, local business deal while he's on scholarship there. So, uh, you know, in regards to, to sort of, I guess as the name, image, and likeness rights have changed, it's sort of shifting. Like you said, the, the amateurism argument seems to be pretty much dead in the water at this point. That seems to be quickly becoming a relic of the past. Do you see there being furthering of, of not just intellectual property rights, but just sort of rights for the athletes in general? I know in, I know in football right now, there's this great controversy over the, the transfer portal that you know, the, the letters of intent that used to be signed used to mean, oh, I'm, I've committed for four years and now players are sort of moving, as, as you said for yourself, as free agents, you know, pretty much treating it that they have freedom of movement to go from school to school. Do you see there sort of being a, a furthering of their, their rights beyond intellectual property or, or even something like a, a student athlete union in the future as a result of since they've sort of transcended that? Uh, exception as workers that the NCAA managed to create through amateurism for years. You see there being a bit of a cascading effect in the future to them actually acting more as a workforce. Well, that's, that, you know, that, that is a real issue now that, um, you know, that, that is being discussed, um, you know, on campuses and, um, uh, and that's the, the issue of, um, you know, is, you know, could it be, should it be the case that a college athlete is an employee of the institution, you know, and, and therefore would have the right to unionize? And, you know, actually, you know, a couple of months ago, the, the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board um, issued a memorandum to its field offices um, that college athletes are viewed as employees under the National Labor Relations Act, which applies to private universities, but it, it's a pretty strong statement. And 
it is something that you know has been you know put into the mix together with um, a potential class action that's brewing um, in federal district court in, in Pennsylvania, potential class action that um, you know would approach the issue of whether a, a student athlete should be an employee from a litigation perspective. And so these raise, you know, and it's not clear how these how these are going to come out. And it would right. be kind of hard to get your head around the, the issue of, you know, thinking of what are the implications if it were the case that college athletes are employees. I mean, does that mean if you have a bad game, you can, you know, you're fired. Um, right. You know, there, there, when, there are a lot of different ways to slice and dice it, but I think that it does raise, you know, the fundamental question of, you know, of rights of, of college athletes and, um, you know, how they should be treated. And, and, you know, and I think a, a growing perception among many that look, you know, that, that there, there's some troubling aspects of, um, you know, how they have been treated and, and restricted um, you know, over the years in a number of, of ways. And, and on the employment issue, you know, it, it's, you know, you can look at it and, and say that really doesn't make sense. On the other hand, you know, what about, you know, players that, that get hurt or injured and therefore aren't entitled, you know, to workers' compensation or right. the kind of benefits that they would get as employees? And, you know, so maybe, you know, there, there, there's a, a way to look at this in a way that that identifies you know, the, the things that and the rights that uh, a college athlete should have. And and I think that we'll see those kinds of things becoming, you know, more high profile over the years as part of this overall movement towards increased rights for college athletes writ large. Wow. This is certainly going to be a lot to work through in the coming years for sure. Now, as we sort of wind down here a little bit, I, I'd just like to ask you more personally, how did you how did you get into working in this area of intellectual property and all that? What made you want to stick with it once you once you got into it as well? Well, um, you know, I guess you know, backing up, I I grew up in uh, a small town in Alabama called Tuscaloosa, and I, I've heard of it. <laughs> I worked in, I worked my I worked at the local CBS affiliate at the time. My father was the general manager of the station, so I, I grew up. Um, you know, as part of the sports team, actually, I grew up doing a lot of a little bit of everything at a, at a TV station, but it included, you know, being involved during the Bear Bryant era of, um, you know, of covering college sports, Alabama sports and other sports around the state. And, um, you know, as I went to college and, and law school, I, I knew that I wanted to stay involved in some way, shape or form in media or sports. I had the opportunity fortuitously to, you know, to go to work directly out of law school with the collegiate licensing company that was being formed by Bill Battle. He was, he played at Alabama for the Bear. Uh, he actually, you know, began representing Coach Bryant and after coaching, after playing and coaching, started the collegiate licensing company with the idea that colleges and universities shouldn't be giving away their rights, right. just like the NFL doesn't give away its rights. And so I kind of came in and I don't know that companies like that were called startups back right. in the time, right. but it's, I got involved you know, in that and, and saw the company grow organically representing Alabama and then, right. you know, signing um, you know, other colleges and universities. And, and so I, I kind of grew up in the world of, 
of college rights and, and issues related to, you know, to the collegiate world. And, um, you know, had the opportunity to, to grow with and, and see collegiate licensing and merchandising and sponsorships really explode in the 90s and, and 2000s. And then, you know, more recently, um, I um, um, moved into private practice where I am taking learnings that I've had and, and the relationships that I've developed over the years in college and working with others, with those that are helping student athletes facilitate deals with licensees and others that want to, you know, get involved, you know, in the area. And so it, it's, um, it, it's a lot of fun. It's a great opportunity. So I take it you're, you're from Tuscaloosa. You went to Alabama. I, I would make the uh, connection that you might be a, a Crimson Tide fan yourself. Is that, is that correct? I think that's safe to say, you know, when I was at, when I was at CLC and we represented 200 colleges and universities, I had to be very diplomatic. Right. And I couldn't say, you know, roll tide knowing that we also represent Auburn and Georgia and, right. and you know, many other SEC schools, but I can, I, I, I'm good right now with, with roll tide. I was going to say, I, I have a feel, just a hunch that you might be, you might be feeling a little, uh, a little confident in, uh, in that fandom after the past Oh boy, decade plus now it seems of of this great empire that has been built uh, there in Tuscaloosa. So, I'm sure I'm sure there's a lot to look forward to. I be, I believe you might have a reason to look forward to it as well in the next uh, few days, if if I'm not mistaken. It'll be fun for sure. Absolutely. By, by the time this comes out, I I believe that will be resolved. They're about to be resolved. So, uh, uh, best of luck. Yes. Either way, um, I, strangely you. enough, pitting pitting the state you currently work in against your against your alma mater as well. Um, I, I see that game's going to be you might you might be surrounded by people who disagree with you, I would assume as well. Well, you know, we, we may beg to differ, but, um, <laughs> you know, the, I, I um, am, am around, you know, good fans and, and um, you know, I, I can certainly feel for Georgia and understand why being 0 and 4 against or by Kirby Smart being 0 and 4 against um Saban that, that there would be a pretty strong desire to see if right. they can pull this one out. But, right. Now, I, I gotta ask what, what do you what do you like about what you do uh, about the field you work in? You know, I think I like uh, you know more than anything, you know, whether it's this, you know, I, I'm also about to begin teaching a sports law class to undergraduate students at Georgia Tech. But it, it's really, you know, kind of you know helping um, yeah, it, providing a service and being responsive to, to people. And, um, you know, I've had really a, an exciting, um, you know, high profile opportunity that came to me to, to work in this space. And I still love being in this space, providing useful, um, you know, services and, and adding value to businesses that I work with. And then, you know, interacting with with students is something that I've continued to do as well. There are a lot of students that have a lot of questions and, and everybody wants to get in to sports in one way or the other, either as a marketing person or as a lawyer. And they always ask me, well, you know, how, how do I do that? And right. I say, you know, I don't think that there's another story like mine because most people don't graduate from law school and then start in a startup that becomes, <laughs> you know, a, a major collegiate licensing company. Right. But you know, stay at it. And if you've got a passion for it, you know, things have a way of working themselves out. If you work hard and prepare and, and have a little bit of luck. Excellent. Well, Bruce Siegel, I want to thank you again so much for joining me here on Assorted Goods. This has been 
this this hour has blown right by. I've I have learned so much. I, again, I, I feel like I've gotten a free a free lesson from from the uh, future professor here at the Georgia Tech. So I'm uh, I'm thankful for that as well. So really, thank you again for for some by and sharing all your wisdom and expertise with us. It's been my pleasure. Thanks again for having me uh, as a guest. I appreciate it. All right, that's it for this episode of Assorted Goods. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. What a great conversation this was to have. Thank you again to Bruce Eagle for stopping by and lending his expertise. Really means a lot to have the chance to pick the brain of someone so knowledgeable on this subject. If you want to follow the show on the socials, you can follow me and Assorted Goods on Twitter and Instagram. The handle on both platforms is at DisinformedDan. You can also visit the website, disinformed.ca and if you want to support assorted goods all that i ask is that you hit the subscribe button on whatever app you choose to listen on and of course tell a friend about the show send them a link and get them on board spread the love if you have any questions or feedback and you want to email the show you can reach me through the contact page on disinformed.ca or just make it easy and email me at dan at disinformed.ca the music for Assorted Goods was created and produced by my talented brother, David Felden, who, by the way, has a little music of his own coming out later this month, so keep your ears open for that. Thank you, brother, as always. Thank you again for listening. Take care of each other out there, and I'll catch you next time here on Assorted Goods.